Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest this week is a leading voice on the future of legal education and law practice. I'm honored to have been joined by Andrew Perlman, who is Dean at Suffolk University Law School and has been a professor there since 2007. Before entering academia, Dean Perlman was a litigator with a lifelong fascination with innovation and technology. He has served several important functions in the American Bar Association and was recently appointed to serve on the advisory council of the ABA Task Force on the Law and Artificial Intelligence. Dean Perlman has also been involved in various national and local reform efforts, from police practices and access to justice to developing alternate paths to law school and bar admission. He has served as a member of the Content Scope Committee of the National Conference of Bar Examiners, which helped to identify content for the next generation of the bar exam. Additionally, he has written numerous articles on professional responsibility and legal innovation, and he served as a presenter or panelist on more than 100 academic, judicial, and other professional programs. Today, Dean Perlman talks about how his passion for innovation started with the Commodore 64, the history and culture of Suffolk, helping law students embrace generative AI, and updating the bar exam. Dean Perlman, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for making the time to join. My great pleasure, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I look forward to our conversation. Same here. Let's start with just a general question. You've been at the forefront of legal innovation and talking about the need for the evolution and change in the legal profession for a long time, whether it's through your work with the ABA, various other commissions, your your role as dean at Suffolk Law School. Was there a moment where the light bulb went on or is there something in your background that creates that passion for change and innovation? Where, where does that drive come from? It's a great question. And I think if anyone is being honest about where it comes from, it's a little bit of happenstance, a little bit of good fortune and having the right experiences at the right time, right place, right time. So in my case, I can trace some of my interest in legal innovation back to my childhood and having the opportunity to program on a Commodore 64. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) If you remember that computer. I do. Um, I I even had a computer before that. It was a Radio Shack with a tape deck where the uh, information was stored. You had to hit record like you were recording a song, and then you had to play it back. So I always had a fascination with computers and did some basic programming in the basic language. And thought it was fun, interesting, but then got to college and kind of lost track of it and became enamored by the law, pursued a major that was kind of in the social sciences and obviously went to law school. And so that kind of part of me, that passion for technology was on the back burner. And then fast forward in around 2008, 2009, I became involved with that ABA Commission on Ethics 2020, which was looking at how technology was changing the ethics issues that lawyers were involved in. And a couple of years before that, I started blogging in the early days of blogging on some of the relationship between technology and legal ethics because I was teaching legal ethics at the time and then started to bring in some of my love and interest in technology into my field of legal ethics. So that's kind of a long story, but the bottom line is it was just sort of happenstance that I had this interest from childhood in technology. And it suddenly became relevant to me in my chosen field of not only being in legal academia, 
but legal ethics specifically. I started connecting those dots in ways that not too many other people at the time were doing it. And then I started to get these opportunities through the ABA, through the Ethics 2020 Commission, and then the Commission on the Future of Legal Services, Center for Innovation, and all of those dots started to connect. So I would love to be able to say, you know, I'm just an innovator at heart, and that's just who I am. <laughs> I came out uh, but if I'm being way. real, yeah. if I'm being real, I, you know, I just had the right experiences that came into play at the right moment in the history of the legal profession. Well, you've done some. You've done some amazing things. You're being uh, too easy on yourself. You've done some done some incredible things. Let's talk about Suffolk, though. You've been there a, a long period of time. You, you've been deemed for a number of years. And Suffolk has been one of the leading voices for innovation and technology use and thinking differently about how we educate law students. Law schools are not known for their flexibility in thinking about how to deliver legal education. Yet, obviously, there's something about Suffolk that is different than most law schools, or you wouldn't be dean. What is it about the history or culture of Suffolk that has allowed it to be one of the leading voices in this in this field in legal education? It's a, a, another really good question. In fact, I just wrote about this subject in a letter to our alumni for our forthcoming alumni magazine, and we didn't plan this in advance, so you didn't we, know that we I did. had just written that letter. I've not uh, we I've not seen the deck of cards before the show. <laughs> So thank you for the question. You know, I think this innovative spirit at Suffolk goes back all the way to our founding. In 1906, Suffolk Law was founded as a place that gave an opportunity to immigrants and the children of immigrants to get a legal education, particularly at night when they had to work during the day. And at a time when a lot of other law schools were not interested in bringing in students who had that kind of background, either because of their identity or where they were from. And so there was an innovative spirit about who Suffolk was right from the beginning. And I think that has carried forward through the years. I think there have been a lot of ways that Suffolk Law has been at the forefront uh, because it has had to be. It's been scrappy. You know, we're in Massachusetts. There are nine other law schools here. There's a lot of competition. And so when you're faced with a lot of competition, you need to stand out. You need to be innovative. You need to think outside the box. So I think it's part of the the culture of the institution to be pushing the envelope. And one of the reasons that I was attracted to the deanship here after having served on the faculty for 14 years was because it very much fit who I was and what I cared about. So I can't say that it's necessarily something that I brought about it. Certainly not. I think it was pre-existing and something that was attractive to me in terms of becoming the dean. As you've seen the evolution of the practice and as you've seen Suffolk grow and continue to lead this effort, has the profile of the student changed? Do you look for different things? We'll get to generative AI here in a minute, of course. But even more broadly than that, has the I assume the profile has changed over time just because the inevitability of change. But are you looking for different characteristics now than you than you were ten years ago? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think we're maybe drawing to us a slightly different student body than we were perhaps 10 years ago, but we're not looking for anything new or different. It's not like we're going out and looking for people who can program that Commodore 64 <laughs> or any other computer or have a computer science background or anything like that. We're looking for people who have the kind of grit, determination, willingness to keep learning that has always served lawyers well in any setting. 
And what we're finding is some of the programs that we've built, especially around legal innovation and technology, students are drawn to it, whether they had a background in computers or technology or not, and they're thriving being exposed to it. So what we're looking for is the same thing we've always looked for, really that determination, willingness to continue learning. And I think that serves anyone well, no matter what setting they're in. Have you seen a change in the demand for your graduates from the legal industry as innovation has become the buzzword? Because you guys are you guys are at the forefront of this. Yes, we really have seen a marked increase in interest in our graduates, and that's borne out by some of the data that we and other ABA accredited law schools collect in terms of employment outcomes. And we have seen the eighth fastest rise in our employment outcomes in the country over the last nine years. And I think that part of that is the kind of training that we offer is increasingly recognized as important among legal employers. And so we have seen a market increase in interest among all kinds of employers hiring from Suffolk, from large firms, small firms, public interest organizations, you name it. So we have seen an improvement in that regard. And many people do cite the practical training that we offer, not just in legal innovation and technology, but we've really invested across the board in practical skills training and with all kinds of legal employers having fewer opportunities and resources to train newly licensed lawyers, they want to hire graduates who can hit the ground running. And that's something that we've long prized. And I think the market is really recognizing that. It's one of the reasons we've seen such increased growth. And to your point, we are also seeing opportunities for our graduates to enter positions that didn't exist a generation ago. Legal project manager, legal solutions architect, one of our early graduates in our legal innovation and technology concentration. She went into family law after learning automated legal document assembly, and she decided to create a company based on the concept. It's called Hello Prenup. She went on Shark Tank with the idea and got two sharks to invest in her idea. (laughs) And she credits Suffolk for having introduced her to the concepts that she used to build that business. So there's lots of examples that I could give you of our students thriving because of what they learned at Suffolk. I realize I'm making some assumptions on behalf of our audience that their familiarity with Suffolk that I probably shouldn't make. Talk to us a little bit about those unique programs, whether they're in legal innovation or practicing practicums. Yeah, I'd love to. So Suffolk Law School has a number of programs in legal innovation and skills training more generally. Let me talk more generally about our investment in skills programs. We have long been at the forefront of clinical education legal writing, trial advocacy, and dispute resolution. And people malign, and appropriately so, U.S. News and World Report rankings. But in those four areas, we're regularly ranked in the top 20% in the country. In fact, we're the only school that for eight years in a row has been ranked in all four of those categories in the top 20% for the last eight years. So that's definitely an area that we have long invested in is those traditional skills programs. So that's one. But the legal innovation and technology aspect of it is only about a decade old, which for most law schools, ancient history at this point. I was going to say that it still precedes most law schools. Yes, it does. So we, we had the first legal innovation and technology concentration in the country back in, I think it was either 2013 or 2014, where we started teaching concepts like legal project management, legal process improvement, automated document assembly. And so this is where that student that I was describing before, she was exposed to some of those ideas and it served her well. 
And then we had uh, a few years later, after I became the dean, we created a legal innovation and technology lab, which is, for all intents and purposes, a new kind of clinic where the client is a legal services organization or a court. And we have two fantastic lawyer programmers, somebody named David Colarusso and Quentin Stainhouse, who are practitioners and residents, legally trained and experts in AI and computer science. And they are building amazing tools that are helping to transform how legal services are delivered inside of courts, but also legal services organizations. And then they enlist students and teach students how to use those skills to reimagine legal services. And then the final example that I'll give you is that the students who get this specialized training are not only working in the lab, but then we place legal innovation and technology fellows inside of our traditional clinic. So a lot of law schools have clinical programs, criminal defense, health law, family law, immigration. And so those legal innovation and technology fellows are tasked with helping those traditional clinics reimagine their work so that they can do their work better, faster, and cheaper. So it's giving students this whole buffet of opportunities, really, to learn a new way of legal services delivery that, as we've been talking about, really pays off for them on the back end when they look for employment. Yeah, it has to be for anybody paying attention to the evolution of the industry, as slow as that evolution seems to some of us. This is a real incredible value that the law school is offering to its students. And it has to be a nice take up of that for y'all. Yes, it is gratifying to see that people are responding, both employers, but also applicants. So we've seen a sharp increase in applications to the law school. And I think it's due in no small part to really the desire of everyone going into higher ed, given how expensive it is, that they want to develop the skills that they know are going to pay off for them on the back end. So Yes. So it's kind of this virtuous cycle that we've created here that's been really rewarding. That's wonderful. If we look at the last few years, there's there's a couple of changes that have impacted legal education. One of them is generative AI. I don't want to come back to that. But the other one was COVID. That had to be quite a challenge for you in terms of managing the organization through that time. How did you manage that? What were your guideposts for managing through that period of time? Well, anybody who was leading an organization at that time will tell you it was hard. Yeah. Uh, and it's especially hard when you run any kind of unit that is traditionally an in-person operation and almost exclusively so. So it was a difficult switch. We had to go online almost overnight. And just coincidentally, just a little bit of a backstory here, we had been working for about two years on a new hybrid JD program that would allow our students to take a materially larger percentage of their courses online. It took a long time for the faculty to think about it and work on it and figure out the right way to structure it. It came up for a vote in March of 2020 at oh, our last in-person faculty meeting of the year. And just to show you how far we've come, there were all sorts of questions at that meeting about how exactly do we teach online? What is this thing called Zoom? I've never heard of it before. And then boom, a couple of weeks later, everything goes online. And so I guess we had, were the beneficiary of having done some of that legwork already, become familiar with some of the tools that we would need to move things virtually. But it was tough because there are those of us like me who programmed Commodore 64s as a kid, and there are those who are really not entirely comfortable with technology. And so we had to create structures for both faculty and students to 
help them navigate that virtual environment. We needed to create opportunities for our students to remain engaged with the community and with each other in a virtual world. We went out of our way to create at least one in-person class for every entering first-year student because we wanted to create that possibility when possible. And so I you know, had to go out and ask faculty to teach in person during that first year, which was, you know, very scary. Um, So I went back into the classroom myself. I put a mask on, taught civil procedure for the first time in a few years. So those were the the moments when we're really just kind of making it up as we go. It was really, really difficult as it was really for everybody. Uh, It's not like we were unique, but it was, I, I was fortunate to have a tremendous leadership team, both here at the law school and our university and a faculty that really chipped in and learned new skills on the fly, almost at the drop of a hat. And, you know, it wasn't entirely clear to me that first year when almost all of our classes, except for those few exceptions that I mentioned, were online, what the learning outcomes were going to be. And the students who had their first year online just took the bar exam and their first time bar pass rate was just shy of 80%, which was like 7% higher than it was the year before. Huh. Um, so it was just, I was really especially gratifying to see our first time bar pass rate this year because I knew, I knew that most of those students had their first year of law school in those really challenging moments. And so it was gratifying to see that all of us had come together and work well enough that those foundational courses that are often tested on the bar exam, they did really well. So long story short, it was tough, but we got through it. That's fabulous. You know, it's interesting. I've talked to a number of professors since that time, and they you, you mentioned engagement, and they, they mentioned that as being one of the most challenging things. And one of the things they missed the most was those sidebar conversations with students after class or before class or that happened because you're standing next to one another. That's a difficult thing to recreate virtually, isn't it? It is. And our faculty tried. They would log on early, stay on after a class so people could stop in and virtual office hours. And our dean of students office created opportunities for students to meet each other in more casual and informal ways. But it's really hard to replicate. And as you know, Stephen, it's also an issue for law firms even today with training newly licensed lawyers who are largely remote. They're missing out on those opportunities for those fortuitous interactions that are part of the formative experience. And how do you replicate that is very difficult. So it's it's wasn't unique to the 2020-2021 academic year. This is something I think we are going to have to figure out going forward is how do we engage people in a world where more and more is taking place in an online environment? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think about, you know, my early years, I learned a lot in terms of practicing just by hanging around, frankly, and just watching more senior lawyers or just catching up to them, even if they didn't know they were sharing insights that were important to me, they were. And I think it's important to be more purposeful now about that, which is not always the easiest thing for lawyers to do, to recognize they're creating moments intentionally to educate or train or mentor younger attorneys. That's a big ask for most people, I think. It is. It used to come naturally, but we're going to have to, as you said, become more intentional about it. And that's true in not just law firms, but almost any kind of employer. And it's true in educational settings as well. So we're all trying to figure out what this looks like going forward. So let's talk about the second sort of main big force that has an impact on legal education. Because we're, as we record this, we're coming up onto the 
one-year anniversary of ChatGPT when the world changed. How do you see the evolution of this technology impacting law schools and law school education and the profession generally? I think it's going to have a significant impact. And I was really struck a year ago, my colleague Gabe Tenenbaum introduced me to ChatGPT a few days after it was released, and it really just blew my mind what it was able to do. And I wrote an article with ChatGPT within a week of its release, just demonstrating how it could help me write a law review article. Most of it was written in about an hour, and I showed some use cases with drafting a complaint and interrogatories. It was a great article, by the way. Oh, thank you. Well, you can thank ChatGPT because it wrote most of it. Uh, <laughs> but I, um, it really has only gotten better since then. So I am convinced that this is the most transformative technology for our professions in our lifetime. So I think it's going to be pretty remarkably impactful. And then the question is, what does that mean for law schools? And I think that means we have to do more than thinking about it in terms of students using it to cheat. I think that's not the right reaction. The idea is we need to think about how do we teach students how to use these tools? How do we prepare them for a world where these are the tools that lawyers will be expected to use? As much as there is commentary right now that lawyers, consistent with their duty of competence, have to check everything that comes out of a generative AI tool and they shouldn't be cutting and pasting chat GPT output into a brief like some lawyers have been doing and getting sanctioned for, I actually think that in the not too distant future, it will be considered incompetence not to use these tools, that we will be expected whenever we're creating a document in the first instance to prompt for it, to get a first draft. The idea of opening up a word to a blank screen or opening up an old document, saving as and doing a find and replace, that's going to be as old fashioned as going to Shepherds and looking at the pocket parts. We're just not going to do it that way anymore. So if that's true, then backing up from that, how do we need to prepare our students to enter a profession that's going to look pretty different from the one that you and I entered decades ago? And I think that means. I think there are two possibilities. One is you could say, well, let's double down on the most bespoke aspects of our field. Really hit home the importance of problem solving, working in the gray area, strategic thinking, the kind of work that is going to be most resistant to generative AI. I don't think it will always be resistant to generative AI, but probably take the longest. So that's one possible approach. The other possible approach is to help students work differently, embrace the tools, learn how to use them. And the way that I've thought about it is a new kind of issue spotting. So whereas in law school, you learn how to spot property issues and contract issues and torts issues, we should be teaching students how to spot how a particular service can be delivered better, faster, and cheaper through technology or innovation. Generative AI will be a part of that, but it's not like we're teaching generative AI for its own sake or prompt engineering for its own sake. What we want to expose students to is the idea that when they get out and practice, almost no matter what setting they're in, they should be looking for opportunities to do that work in different ways. And I want them to have been exposed in law school to what some of those possibilities may be, because I think that's going to serve them well and give them a competitive advantage almost no matter what they do. And I'll close with this thought. It's certainly not original. I've heard others make the same point that the future is not going to be, for the most part, it's not going to be lawyers versus AI tools. 
It's going to be lawyers who use AI tools effectively versus those who don't. And so I want our students to be in the former category, not the latter. No, I think that's an interesting way to think of it in your two-prong approach. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, though. I think that you need to be able to do both. And not because the first prong is necessarily resistant to generative AI, although to your point it is, but because that's, that's the human side of the practice. That's the value, the, the interpersonal connection and the value you add as a lawyer. And the question becomes, it's one thing to say for someone like me that's been practicing for many decades, I've got a lot of years of experience. Okay, I can pull, up, I can pull on that. In a world where generative AI can do the, many of the tasks that I grew up learning on, how do we create more people who have honed those skills and have the sufficient level of experience and maturity and background to deliver that kind of advice? I completely agree with you. I, I don't think it's an either or. What I think it would just be a mistake if law schools focus only on the first bucket and only on that. I agree with that. Yes. Uh, so I, I think we have to do both. So fully in agreement. I agree. So you're one of the things you're on is the Committee for the National Conference of Bar Examiners looking at the bar exam? So I was. I was on the content scope committee uh, that was looking at what topics no longer need to be tested on the bar exam. Yes. Could have used you a few decades ago (laughs) on on (laughs) the state's question on the Illinois State Bar exam. Yes, or the rule against perpetuities question, where I think in my bar prep class, I was just advised to choose B and move on. (laughs) Talk to me about the role of the bar exam in a world of generative AI where technology can pass the bar exam. How does the bar exam need to evolve to stay as a test valid, assuming it ever was valid, testing device for qualification for people to become lawyers? Well, I do applaud the National Conference of Bar Examiners for working towards updating the exam to make it more of skills oriented to be less of a memorization exam. And that was part of the content scope committee that I was on was to narrow the range of doctrines that we're testing. It was a recognition that making it a memorization exam doesn't really reflect the kinds of skills that most lawyers need. And so it's moving more in the direction for those who have taken the multi-state performance test more in that vein. So I, I, I think it's moving in a helpful direction, but your point is, is it far enough in light of all of the changes that we're seeing? And I think the answer is arguably no. And what's been exciting to see is a number of states that are thinking even more outside the box and creating alternate paths to licensure. So just this week, uh, while we're recording this, Oregon announced that they are creating a new what you might call a supervised practice pathway that you can gain licensure in Oregon if you graduated from law school and then you have a certain amount of supervised practice with certain benchmarks you need to reach in a portfolio of work that shows that you've achieved a certain level of competence. No bar exam necessary. And California has been looking at that. Utah is looking at that. Massachusetts, I'm on a committee that's been examining some possibilities along those lines. So I, I think you're point is very well taken, that the bar exam, which has been around for a while, only can do so much, and that we should be innovators here as well and think about other ways in which we can assess the competence of newly licensed lawyers, the be-all and the end-all of a bar exam. I don't think it was ever really a good indication of whether somebody was competent. You have a lot of false positives and negatives with the bar exam, and there may be better ways to go about it in the future. 
Yeah, I, I remember my rule against perpetuities question on the bar exam. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be a real estate lawyer. There's nothing, there's nothing on this bar exam that's testing what I'm going to do as a lawyer. But of course, it's such a disparate profession. You have people practicing in so many different ways. Big law firms, small law firms, sole practitioners, in-house counsel. One test for all of them is, is inevitably inapplicable to most of them. Uh, agreed. Yeah, for me, by the way, it was commercial paper. That's the one I just you know, wasn't never, <laughs> I never was going to need. And it turns out I was right. <laughs> you talked about some of the state work going on to try to deal with alternate paths to licensure. You see, you also see some states dealing with Utah, Arizona, for example, dealing with questions about the unauthorized practice of law and the role of technology in the delivery of legal services. What out there seems promising to you? What's got you most intrigued? What gets me most intrigued is that we're innovating. It's not any one particular change, is that there is regulatory innovation that's taking place around the country that states are willing to try new approaches, whether it's sandboxes, revisions even to Rule 5.4, which up until recently was largely a third rail, new approaches to how we think about the unauthorized practice of law or, or new categories of legal services providers that could be authorized and appropriately regulated. So I think there is a lot of imagination right now, people thinking about new ways of regulating the delivery of legal services. That's, that's the most exciting development to me, not any one specific change. It's just a more general mindset that people are open to the possibility of new approaches. I know we've hit our time gone a little bit over, but uh, one last question. As you look at sort of the broad field in legal education and in, in practice and the role of innovation, are you optimistic about where the profession is going? Are you skeptical? How do you view this progression? We've got so many issues in terms of access to justice gap delivery of services in the, in the corporate environment, et cetera. Yeah. You know, I, I might be biased here as the dean of a law school, but I think there's never been a more exciting time to think about going into the legal profession. Anyone who's interested in making a difference and embracing change, this is the moment. And it's not just technology. It's not just the innovative ways of delivering legal services like we've been talking about. But I also believe lawyers are going to be at the forefront of so many pressing issues that we are facing in society, including, and certainly not limited to, threats to democracy and the rule of law that we've seen in recent years. Lawyers are the people who really are at the forefront in protecting values that are critical to all of us. So I think that this is a great moment to go to law school. I am optimistic about the future of the profession and the role that we play. And so to be a part of that as a law school dean is incredibly rewarding. And it's a real privilege to be in the role that I have. And the profession is fortunate to have you there, Dean Perlman. Very kind, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Same here. Real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.